0: If you would this morning, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1. 1 Samuel, chapter 1. We read this morning of a certain man by the name of Elkanah. It says he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah says Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her Hannah, Why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Like thine handmaid, find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. The Bible will go on to tell us that there came a point that the Lord remembered her, and she was blessed to have a son whose name was Samuel. And the time came the next year that Elkanah went up to the city of God to offer, but she would not go until the child was weaned knowing that when she went, she would leave the child there in the city of God, there at the tabernacle of the Lord, and he would belong to the Lord for all his days. And Samuel, of course, would be very great in the kingdom of God during his days. He would be the one that God would choose to anoint Samuel, excuse me, Saul, and then later David to be king over the nation. We'll find even his counsel was so needed by Saul Saul would later even go to the witch of Endor and ask for the spirit of Samuel to be raised from the dead. And Samuel came and, of course, let him know that God had taken the kingdom from him, but instead had given it to another. Here, though, when the Bible says that this family went up to worship and sacrifice at Shiloh, which is the place where worship took place until David was king, it says that they went up to worship the Lord of hosts. And as she made her prayer to God, if you notice, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Lord, bless us this morning. I'd like to look at that phrase, the Lord of hosts. We've been looking at several aspects of the names of God and What he does for his people. The last time we spoke before you we saw that God is a God of the hills but also a God of the valleys. And here he's declared to be the Lord of hosts. And this phrase is used in different ways throughout the Bible. He's called the Lord of hosts, sometimes the Lord God of hosts, sometimes the God of hosts. But also he's called the Lord of Sabaoth, which also means Lord of hosts. The word host means simply armies. Armies. Which means God is a God of armies. He's the God over the armies of heaven. But He's also God over the host of the earth. The Bible lets us know that He's host over the stars of the skies. And all the planetary systems that we see there in outer space. It lets us know that God is sovereign. And as a sovereign God, there is nothing outside of His control. There is no army which He cannot command. There is no army that can withstand Him. There is no power that can exceed His power. And there is none that can gather together successfully against the Lord. As we see in Psalm 2, at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wicked rose up and the kings of the earth stood together. And here they conspired, the Bible tells us, to break and asunder the bands of God. In other words, they tried their very best effort to destroy the unity of the Trinity of the Godhead. But the Bible says with their very best efforts that God shall laugh at them into derision. That the very best that they could do was nothing in comparison to the power of an Almighty God. Here we find that as Elkanah goes up to worship, he recognizes he's worshiping the Lord of hosts. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, it's the very first time we see this description given to God. However, you'll find that it is the most used description of God throughout the Bible. It's used about 300 times uh, throughout the Old Testament and only twice in the New Testament. And every time it speaks of the power of God, it speaks to His ability to deliver. In fact, the Apostle Paul on one occasion there in Romans chapter 9 said, Except the Lord of Sabaoth had not left us a very small remnant or left us a seed. He said, We should have been made like to Sodom and also like unto Gomorrah. What's he mean there? He said, our God is powerful, and our God was able to spare. Our God was able to hold a remnant in His hand. And even though the wicked raged, God was still able to have an army in His number, and an army which He saw over, and the wicked was not able to overcome the Lord. So here as they go up to worship in 1 Samuel chapter 1, they recognize that they are serving the God of armies. They recognize that their God is a God of war. He is a warrior, the Bible tells us. In fact, in Exodus chapter 15, after the children of Israel had seen their enemies of Pharaoh vanquished in the Red Sea, if you remember, they sang that hymn, and part of that hymn says that their God was a man of war. They recognized that God was one who could fight, God was one that could deliver, and there was no power outside of His control. It's much like Joshua saw in Joshua chapter 5 when he saw the captain of the host of the Lord. Meaning he saw the Lord Jesus Christ come out there at the end of Joshua chapter 5. Just before they would go up to the city of Jericho, he meets the Lord, the captain of the Lord's host. being the captain of the Lord's army. The word captain of the Bible is much like we use general in our day. That means the Lord Jesus Christ is at the head of his army. And here, Joshua, he went out that day, he saw the captain of the host of the Lord, and he asked him, Are thou for us or for our adversary? And we find that the Lord was with them. And so because the Lord of hosts was with them, they were able to conquer the city of Jericho in seven days. Six days they did nothing but march around the city once a day. The seventh day they marched around it seven times, and the seventh time they blew the trumpet of the Lord, and the walls of that city fell down flat, and the children of Israel, uh, guided by the captain of the host of the Lord, were able to go up into that city and destroy that city so that all the land greatly feared uh, the children of Israel because they recognized that the God of armies uh, was on their side. And so here that day He greatly delivered them. Well, why in the world would Elkanah and Hannah, as they go up to pray to God, especially Hannah, as she makes her vow, why would she call him the Lord of hosts? Because she recognized she had an adversary. The Bible says, once again, her adversary provoked her sore. Now, it will let us know that this adversary was a woman, because in verse 7 it says, And as he did, Elkanah, year by year, goes up to the city to worship. When she went up, meaning uh, when Hannah went up, to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Now, I don't know if this is uh, Elkanah's other wife who's provoking her. It doesn't say who it is, but there is a woman that is provoking her. Now, I don't know if Panino is actually teasing her and taunting her because she has no children, or if just the very fact that she has children and Hannah does not is the thing that provokes her. Or it could be that it was somebody totally different that taunted this woman because she had no children. But I know this, I've spoken to several women that were never able to have children, and just looking at a woman that could, it provoked them to grief and to, and to concern and also to regret. And so here is Hannah who desires children of the Lord. And in that day it was a great curse upon a woman if she could not bear children to her husband. And uh, her husband then not have a name in the land of Israel and an inheritance to pass forward that came from his father. And so here is Hannah who comes before the Lord and as she vows her vow, she says, O Lord of hosts! She says, O Lord of armies, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord. So here she is battling an enemy that's coming against her. She's being provoked continually. So what does she do? She calls on the God of hosts of heaven and begs him to fight in her defense, to come to her aid and to relieve her of her affliction. And the Bible lets us know that God hears her cry because it'll go on to say that the Lord remembered her and her womb was open, and so she was blessed to have a child by the name of Samuel who was given to the Lord as a great servant who would serve the Lord faithfully all the days of his life. Here this was a woman who recognized that even though uh, there is a great uh, affliction against me, I have a God who is able and he is a God of armies that can come to my defense and in the day when uh, one provokes me I can call one who is greater than my enemy who will come to my defense and to my aid. And He is a God of refuge, a God of help. And He will hear me when I cry. And thanks be to God, the God that I serve, is a God who has ability. And He's a God who is over all the armies of heaven, the Bible declares. And when I need His help, He shall come to my rescue. And thanks be to God, we still serve the same God of hosts in our day as well. And there are times that we may be provoked. There may be times an adversary is pursuing us. And we likewise ought to cry to the God of hosts that He would come to our defense. And Come to our aid in First Samuel chapter seventeen, we find that David does this. We looked at this story a couple of weeks ago, but it 's so good it 's uh, worth looking at again. First Samuel chapter seventeen is when David has to face Goliath as he comes against Goliath, though we find Goliath taunts the people of God for forty days. The Bible says, forty days there is the valley of Elah between the two, uh, the two armies, the children of Israel on one mountain. The Philistines on the other. And Goliath every day for 40 days would ascend down into that valley taunting the children of Israel. And he would also say, I defy the God of Israel. Those were the very words that Goliath will use. And for 40 days we find King Saul, which it's uh, ironic that Saul happens to be king right now. He's head and shoulders above the rest of Israel. But yet when this man who is nine foot nine inches tall comes out every day and taunts him, Saul does not have the courage to go out and defend the God of Israel. Now I'll say this, God of Israel does not need to be defended. But at the same time, you and I should not deny to own our Lord, nor to defend His cause. And when men would rise up against the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to rise up in defense of that name and declare that we are followers of Him and disciples of Him, and that we will not stand idly by while we hear the name of God infringed upon by the ungodly wickedness of man but we ought to be willing to stand up for the name of Christ and this is why because the Lord Jesus Christ stood up for you and me in the hour that we needed it most and delivered us from our sins and purged our sins from us and cleansed us from our iniquity and now has stood in our defense and occasionally even I believe stands up at the right hand of God when you and I stand in need if Jesus Christ is willing to stand up for you and me we ought to be willing to stand up for him what well, David does when David comes out of the camp and he hears that Philistine come down and defy the armies of the God of Israel, David is offended by the fact that the children of Israel have not taken up the cause of God. In fact, he'll even ask his brother, his his brother rebukes him, he says, is there not a cause? And then he speaks likewise also to the soldiers. And then he goes to Saul and tells Saul that I will go out against him. I'm not afraid of this uncircumcised uh, uncircumcised Gentile. I'll be happy to go and fight him. And of course, Saul lets David know, well, you're just a youth. Uh, uh, You can't do it. Uh, He's too large for you, too great for you. If you remember, this valley is called Elah, meaning the valley of the mighty oak, which is exactly what Goliath was. He was a mighty oak compared to David. However, we find that David was not afraid of him because David had in memory two deliverances that he had experienced at the hand of God. In fact, he'll tell Saul, there came an occasion as I was watching my father's flock that a lion and a bear, they came and they took a a lamb out of the flock of my father. And he says, here's what I did. I went after the lion and I went after the bear. And speaking of the lion, he says, I took him by the beard and I took that lamb out of his mouth and I smote him as I grabbed him by the beard. Imagine that. I mean, think what What would you do if a roaring lion came against you? I don't think I'd be going out after him. David doesn't say, I just stood there in a fence. He says, I chased after him. I pursued him. And I took him by the beard and I smote him. And he says, and the same God that delivered me out of the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion shall deliver me out of the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. So he goes on and says this in verse 45. He comes to the Philistine and he says, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. He says, But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. David recognized what Saul did not. David recognized what his uh, seven older brothers did not. Nor all the army of Israel who's standing there fearing this one man. David, though, recognized that he was not fighting alone. But he recognized that God who is the captain of the host of the Lord would fight with him and fight for him. And so he trusted that the cause of God was worthy for to fight for. And so he went out against the giant, and the Bible makes it very clear that the Lord blessed him there that day, and he conquered that giant and slew off his head, or cut off his head with his own sword. And there that day the children of Israel had a great victory, why? Because David recognized that God is a God of hosts. You and I may face many giants in our life. But we need to recognize there's one far greater than any giant we might ever encounter. He is the Lord God of hosts. He's the God of the armies of Israel. He's the God who has never been defeated. We turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find that Samuel comes to Saul. And he says, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus said the Lord of hosts. He says, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talium, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. Now Saul is doing just what Amalek did in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus chapter 17, the children of Israel were passing through a valley. And as they were passing through that valley, Amalek laid in wait. Meaning they had set ambushments uh, to go against the people of God. And the day comes that as they pass through that valley, uh, having done nothing to Amalek before. If you go back to Genesis 36, though, you'll find Amalek is the son of Esau. And if you'll remember, the Bible makes clear that God hated Esau. And you'll find that Amalek has the very nature of his father. He's a very wicked one. And here he finds opportunity against the children of Israel. And he and his nation go out and fight against him and catch them in a way when they were not prepared. And if you'll remember... Moses went up into a mountain, he and Aaron and Hur. And so long as the hands of Moses were raised up, the children of Israel prevailed. But because the hands of Moses were heavy, we find that Amalek prevailed. And so the Bible lets us know that Aaron and Hur, they took a stone and they set Moses on the stone and one got on one side and one on the other. And Aaron and Hur, they raised up the arms of Moses till the going down of the sun so that Israel prevailed against Amalek. However, Amalek was not utterly destroyed. Well, now Israel has a king. And God remembers what Amalek did to the children of Israel and Exodus chapter 17 so he tells uh, Saul through the voice of Samuel but notice what he says Samuel says thus saith the Lord of hosts he's saying Saul the Lord of armies is declaring this to you you're to go out against Amalek because God remembered what Amalek did to Israel how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt so Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid in wait in the valley but what did God tell Saul to do he says you utterly destroy them all Man and woman, infant and suckling. He says, they're ox, they're sheep, and they're asses. You destroy them all. You don't leave one thing alive. Well, what happens? Well, Saul forgets that God is the God of armies. And the God of armies who was on the side of Saul will soon turn against Saul. Now, I'd much rather have the Lord of armies on my side than against me. And Saul should have taken that into account, but he did not. If you remember, what does Saul do? He keeps Agag the king alive. That was a great trophy to have the king of Amalek. And not only that, he also took the choice of the the flocks and the herds. And so when uh, uh, Samuel comes to the battlefield, remember what Saul says to him? He says, I have followed the commandments of the Lord. In other words, I've done everything what God required of me. And remember what Samuel says? Well, why then do I hear the bleeding of the sheep? Uh, uh, Saul, if that's true, why do I hear this? He says, well, you know, the people, they wanted to keep them. Well, remember what the Lord says. The Lord brings great judgment against Saul, and the kingdom will be ultimately removed from him because he did not recognize that the God of armies was on his side that day and would have delivered Amalek totally into his hand. But if you'll recall, when Saul is put to death, it's an Amalekite that actually slays him at his last day. Why? Because God... Would be proved the God of armies, and here it's not ironic. I believe it was by the hand of God that one of the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Saul, that he should have destroyed and could have destroyed, in and ultimately taken his life. We turn back to First Samuel chapter four, and in First Samuel chapter four, we find the occasion that the children of Israel are in battle against the Philistines, and they come to a place called Ebenezer. And the Philistines, it says, pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined in battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, it says, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand... Of our enemies, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelt between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great about, uh, a great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. Notice what they said. God is coming into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there had not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. But one man stood up and says, Be strong, and quit yourselves like men. In other words, be men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not the servants of the Hebrews. Here is one time the Lord of hosts does not defend the children of Israel. And this is why. Notice what they said. Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. And notice what they said. When it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. And so what do they do? They sin and the ark is fetched. And they call it the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. Now if they would have called for the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. To be brought in the camp and said, Now, O Lord God of hosts, uh, hear our cry and deliver us this day. I think First Samuel chapter 4 would have turned around with a very different ending to the story. But instead of trusting the Lord of hosts, they trusted the Ark of the Covenant, which was nothing more than a piece of furniture that God had set into the tabernacle. It was important, no doubt, but it had no power in and of itself. And here are these children of Israel, instead of trusting in the God who had delivered them over and over again, they are trusting to what they have now made an idol and said, now this art it shall deliver us from the hand of our enemies. Well, it did not deliver them from the hand of their enemies. They were destroyed that day, and also the two sons of Eli were also killed that day, and the Ark of the Covenant of... God was taken out of possession from the Israelites and dwelt in the land of the Philistines. In fact if you'll remember they go on and take to the house of Dagon and uh, the Philistines find out how quick, how powerful the Lord of hosts is because his presence was there in the house of Dagon through the form of that ark and of course that uh, false God could not stand up in the presence of the Lord of armies and I tell you there is no God that any man has ever formed that can stand up against the God of hosts. He'll fall over every single time. Anyway, the children of Israel, they put their trust in the ark instead of putting their trust in the uh, God of the ark. Instead of trusting to the Lord a host of hosts or the Lord of armies that would have delivered them there that day, they instead trusted to a piece of furniture that could do nothing to deliver them. Why? Because they had uh, denounced the Lord by trusting in that thing instead of trusting in the Lord of hosts Himself. Turn now to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3, we find an occasion... When uh, the son of uh, Ahab is now king in Israel, his name is Jehoram. The Bible says during this time that the kings of Moab, they rebel against the king of Israel. And so Jehoram, he's very upset. He's not receiving tribute anymore from the uh, king of Moab. So he goes down to Jehoshaphat and also the king of Edom. And asks them to join together in a league so that they could go back and put their oppression on the king of Moab so that the Moabites would once more uh, pay tribute or a tax to the uh, land of Israel. One thing Jehoshaphat never did figure out is he should not make league with the king of Israel. About three times he does that throughout his life, and every time he finds himself in trouble for it, every time we'll find that God will come against him and speak to him about the thing that he did. Jehoshaphat in many ways was a great king, except he oftentimes united himself with those he should not which is a good picture of you and me. We have been called to be kings and priests to God and as such we should not make league with those of this world. The Bible makes it clear through the pen of the Apostle Paul that we're to come out from among them and be separate. Uh, We're to live holy lives to the Lord. As Peter says, be holy, saith the Lord, as I also am holy. God has called us to live a different life from the world and to be separate from the world. Now it's true that we're in the world and it's true we have to have commerce in this world. But at the same time, even though we may be in this world, we're not to be of this world. We're not to behave like This world, and there needs to be a clear distinction in how we live versus how this world lives, and that's what Jehoshaphat failed to see. Well, we find that the king of Israel and the king of Judah and the king of Edom, it says, they fetched a compass of seven days' journey. This is in uh, 2 Kings 3, verse 9. It says, and there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas! And the Lord hath called these three kings, meaning Jehoshaphat himself and the king of Edom. He says, and this is what he's done to deliver us into the hand of Moab. They get out of the place of battle, seven days journey. And there's absolutely no water whatsoever to feed the armies or to feed their herds. And so what does the king of Israel surmise by this? Well, God has brought us out here in a league so that the king of Moab, instead of us taking him captive, he'll take us captive. But notice what Jehoshaphat says. He says, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. It says, And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom, they went down to him. And it says, And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? You know what he's saying? I'm not here to be a prophet for you. God's called me to be a prophet for Judah. I'm not here to be a prophet for you. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, uh, get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. You know what he's saying? You go to the prophets of Baal and you go to the prophets of the grove. If you want to hear your God speak, you're going to the wrong prophets. Uh, You need to go to those prophets that uh, Elijah slew there and the descendants uh, descendants of those prophets. Uh, Go back to those uh, that uh, belong to your mother and your father. Ask them to uh, say something to you. He says, I don't even want to look at you. He'll go on to say... He says, Nay, for the Lord hath called, and the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hands of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. You know what he just said? I'm only looking at you right now for Jehoshaphat's sake. I'm doing this for Judah's sake. Judah still, to some degree, is trying to serve the Lord. You are not. Now the Bible tells us Jehoram wasn't quite as wicked as Ahab, but he was still wicked. And so here uh, the servant of God, the prophet of God, uh, says, As the Lord of hosts liveth, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat's sake, I would not see thee. I would not look at you. I wouldn't have anything to do with you. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. When this music began to be played, the word of God came to the prophet Elisha. And so then the prophet Elisha says this, For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, that ye may drink both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And he says, And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. So he gives commandments. He says, You go out in the field. He says, And you make this valley full of ditches. He says, And you're not going to see any rain, and you're not going to see wind. But all of a sudden you're going to look out in the morning and all those ditches are going to be full of water. Now how did that happen? The Lord of hosts, who the Bible says he's the host of the sky as well, he sent rain even though there was no rain seen and no wind felt. The water just appeared. (laughs) That's nothing for the Lord. Think about when they come to Horeb back there in the book of Exodus. What happened? Out of the rock of Horeb, what happened? Water came out and uh, over two million souls were fed uh, by the rock which followed them. Which rock was Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. Well, now he says, you just dig this whole valley full of ditches. And the Lord of hosts shall deliver. And the Moabites will not take you into their hand, but God will give them into your hand. And he says, and this is no great thing. In other words, what uh, is about to transpire to you may be a miraculous thing, but to God this is no great thing whatsoever. In other words, it didn't take any of the power of God, hardly just a little of uh, an ounce of His power to do this thing, to deliver the children of Israel, the children of Judah, and also the King of Edom. So they saw there that day that their God, the God of Judah, was the Lord God of hosts. We turn now to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, we find Nebuchadnezzar, he will see. That the uh, king of Babylon is not the king of hosts, but the king of glory is. If you remember in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar walks through his kingdom and begins to boast of this great Babylon which I have built. And as he does so, God strikes him down. The Bible lets us know that God sent him out in the field, and there he dwelt in the wilderness. His hair grew out like the feathers of an eagle, his uh, fingernails like the uh, claws of a, uh, the talons of a, a, a hawk or an eagle. The Bible also lets us know that he eat grass as a beast of the field. And there he was for seven times or seven years. However, at the end of those seven years, it says in verse 34, Daniel chapter 4, he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Notice when his understanding returned to him, when he looked up to heaven, uh, when he looked up to the right place. Uh, uh, the Bible tells us that we're to look up from uh, to the hills from whence cometh our help. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ taught that were to look up, lift up our heads, for our redemption draweth nigh. This individual is too busy looking around at all his glory, and instead of looking up at the glory of God, and because he looked around and saw his own glory, God struck him down. But after seven years, what did he do? He looked up to heaven, and his understanding returned unto him, and he says, And I blessed who? The Most High. Notice what he said about the Most High. I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose generation, excuse me, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. He recognized that there was a king in heaven who was not limited by a span of generation. In other words, he wasn't going to just sit upon a throne for 20, 30, 40, or 50 years and then pass away and hand it on to somebody else. He says, I know this about his throne and his dominion. It's an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. That means of his kingdom, there is no end. Notice what he goes on to say about this king. He says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth it according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God had an army far greater than the army of Babylon. He says he does his will among the armies of heaven, and also among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, and none can say unto him, What doest thou? He finally recognized that he is Nebuchadnezzar. His sovereignty only went so far. His power was limited. His authority was limited. But he recognized there was a God in heaven who had no limit whatsoever. There was a God in heaven whose throne would never cease, whose dominion would never end, whose kingdom would go on from generation to generation. And that king still serves today as we stand here before you this morning. Thanks be to God, his kingdom has never seen an end and neither shall it ever. Nebuchadnezzar saw this and when he did, his understanding, it returned. He finally saw himself as he was, and saw God as he is. We come now to the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, we find a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who is a prince of Judah. Here is the time that the Babylonian Empire has now been struck down by the hand of God through the Medo-Persian Empire. There are two kings, Cyrus and Darius, And now there's going to be a proclamation made that the children of Israel can now, after 70 years, go back to their land. And as they go back, they're going to have a prince over them by the name of Zerubbabel. And he has the charge to rebuild the house of God. And as uh, he receives this charge, Zechariah, through prophecy, speaks to this prince and says these words. He says, Then answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might... Not by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. What's he talking about? He says, Zerubbabel, here's how you're going to raise up once again the house of God. He says, it's not going to be by might, it's not going to be by power, but it's going to be by the spirit of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies is going to be on your side. And he was going to need the Lord of armies because you'll find as you read the record of the rebuilding of the house of God, that there were enemies that were raised up against them. Uh, At one time, the enemy was just laziness among the children of Israel when they were more concerned about having their own homes taken care of, and the house of God lied waste. And then later we'll find that uh, others of the land began to uh, write letters to the king of the Medo-Persian Empire saying that Zerubbabel and the children of Israel are trying to raise them up a city and raise them up a temple so that they can rebel against the king. Uh, They'll face many enemies as they try to rebuild the temple and later the walls of the city of Jerusalem. But over and over all those enemies will fall short. Why? Because the Lord of hosts was on their side and the Lord of hosts desired that his house be rebuilt once again in the city of the living God. I would to God that we would recognize that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I'll build my church, not destroy it. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ has the desire to see his church built, to see his kingdom go forward, to see the gospel proclaimed, to see children in this world who are blind to the truth have their eyes opened through the preaching of the gospel by the power of the Spirit of God. And we ought to be busy uh, trying to spread the gospel every time we have the opportunity when we come into contact with those at school or work or in the neighborhood or in our families and recognize that Jesus Christ says upon this earth, upon this rock, me, I'll build my church and a gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Zerubbabel Understood that and he wouldn't give up. Notice what it goes on to say Not by might, not by power, but my spirit saith the Lord of hosts Who art thou, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. When he says, All the mountains, the great mountains, they'll be a plain. He's saying, All the uh, interferences will be brought low Anything that stands in your way God says I'll take it out of the way He says and only the headstone shall be laid Now the Lord uh, talks about himself As being the chief cornerstone That's the foundation stone The headstones mean the last stone put in place Notice what it goes on to say, that Zerubbabel will be successful, because he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. What's he crying grace to? The headstone of the house of God. Why? Because it was by grace that he was able to once again see that thing uh, uh, brought forth. In fact, the Bible says when they laid the foundation of that place, all the children of Israel, they shouted with a great shout, uh, but they shouted even more when they saw the headstone put in place and they cried grace, grace unto it. If the Lord would bless just to see this church build and grow, what would we say? I hope we say grace, grace to it. It was not by might, it was not by power, but it was by the Spirit of the Living God, the God of hosts, that we saw this church revive, and the Lord bless it to continue on. Amen. Lastly, we turn to Psalm twenty-seven, uh, Psalm twenty-four, Psalm twenty-four. We find a the third in the trilogy speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm twenty-two, you'll find the suffering Savior. Psalm twenty three you'll find the Saviour who's a shepherd. Psalm twenty four you find the conquering shepherd. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in this holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of them that seek Him, that seek Thy face, O Jacob. Verse 7, He says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. As you read these uh, next verses, you're to find two uh, appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ you find the first appearance, which is at Calvary. And the Bible says when he came at Calvary, what is he? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Why? Because the Lord had a great battle to fight there at Calvary. What was the battle? The battle was our sin. The battle was also death. The battle was the curse that had been placed upon us because we had fallen short of the law. The battle was also to vanquish the devil and all the uh, wicked hosts of hell. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, He is mighty and He is strong. He is the Lord mighty in battle. That means He was not insufficient to the task. That means He was able to conquer all the enemies that came up against Him. Notice what it says. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors. Why? So that the King of glory shall come in. You know what He's talking about there? I believe the doors of heaven being opened for the Lord Jesus Christ as He ascended up out of this world after 40 days after His resurrection. Why? Because the King of glory was to come in. He was the Lord who is strong and mighty. The Lord who is mighty in battle but notice in this one he's all by himself he's not here called the lord of hosts he's just the lord strong and mighty the lord mighty and bounty. you know why because he alone got the victory at calvary There was none with Him. He was all by Himself. There was no host there to help Him. The Bible says that His disciples, they all forsook Him and they fled. Uh, Even God Himself turned His face against the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no angelic host to come down and deliver Him that day. There was nobody in heaven, nor in earth, nor even in the depths of hell to help the Lord Jesus Christ. But He alone got the victory at Calvary. He alone stood there uh, for you and me. He alone by Himself uh, took the weight of grief and sin that was due to you and I and placed it upon His own blessed soldiers and by his strength my friends you and I were delivered and he was in that all by himself not with the aid of any not even his father in heaven because in that moment the Bible says the father he hid his face for a moment he turned away and darkness prevailed upon the face of the earth and what did the Lord Jesus Christ cry my God my God why hast thou forsaken me but after that was all over with and the light appeared remember what he said father Into thy hands. I entrust or I commend my spirit. He says it's finished, and he gave up the ghost. He did that all by himself. There was none with him. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 9 Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory la! Open up, ye everlasting doors, it says. Be ye lift up. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. His first coming and His first entrance back into glory. But this second uh, phrase, we find Him coming back into heaven a second time. Why? Because He was dispatched to earth the second time. The Bible tells us that unto him that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That means the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Just as certain as he came the first time, we can have all assurance that he's coming back the second time. And the Bible says he's coming a second time without sin. That means the focus is not sin, but unto salvation. Meaning he will redeem our souls out of this world and our bodies as well and take us into glory. Notice what he's called this time. He's not alone in this uh, uh, second advent. Uh, When he comes the second time, he's called the Lord of hosts, meaning the Lord of armies. Why? Because it says in the book of uh, Jude, that Enoch also the seven from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among all of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jesus is coming back, it says, but he's coming back as the Lord of hosts. He's coming back as the Lord of armies. He's coming back, the Bible says, with ten thousands of His saints. Why? To execute judgment and to convince. That means to convict them that are ungodly for their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. That means when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, He's not going to be the meek and lowly Lamb. But as He comes back the second time, He's going to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And all those wicked who have done wickedly, they will try to flee from His face and cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. But there will be no way to escape the presence of the Lord of hosts because there in that day the armies of heaven shall be unveiled against the wicked for all their ungodliness which they have committed. We find the Lord says in Matthew chapter 25, He says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him. All of them. I don't know how many that is. I know he told Pilate, and well, he told the disciples before he went to Calvary, he says, I could presently call for my father, and he would send 12 legions of angels. He's about to go to Calvary, and Peter has just uh, cut off a high priest's servants or soldier's ear. However, <laughs> well, he's trying to defend the Lord, and the Lord says, Peter, I don't need you to do that. If I wanted to right now, I could ask my father. and My father would send 72,000 angels. Remember they're there in Kings when one angel slew 185,000 Syrians in one night? You know what the Lord is saying? Peter, if I wanted to, I could call for the end of the world. And the day's coming, and I'm going to come with all the angels of heaven. The day was going to come when Jesus Christ would come, but He wasn't going to ask His Father for all the angels. God would send all the angels with Him. Notice again, He says, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divided his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus says, I am coming back. And when I come, all the holy angels shall come back with me. And when I come back, all nations shall be gathered before me, and I shall divide them. And I'm going to take the sheep and put them on my right hand. My sheep. I'm going to take the goats and put them on my left hand. And this is why I'm going to say to the sheep on my right hand, Come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you. When? From the foundation of the world. What's he going to say to the wicked? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Why? Because I never knew you. It says in First Thessalonians chapter 3, That the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men and even as we do towards you. He says to this end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints when he comes back the second time he's not coming by himself the first time he came alone the first time he came as a little baby in the womb of his mother Mary for 33 years he was separated from the Father in a sense at Calvary he was totally by himself, but when it says that second time in psalm twenty four be ye lift up, ye doors, be ye lift up, ye everlasting gates, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory, the Lord of hosts is his name. He's the Lord of armies, and we're going to see him as the Lord of armies as he come back the second time. When he see him come the second time, the Bible says, he shall come with clouds. Enoch said, he shall come with ten thousands of his saints. Here he says, I'm going to come with all the holy angels. When the Lord Jesus comes back, he's going to come back with all his saints. That means with all that have gone to be with the Lord, when he comes back from heaven, he's bringing them with him. Not only they, but all the holy angels with him. Can you imagine what that day is going to appear like when all of a sudden the sky breaks loose and here comes the Son of God with all the angelic hosts of heaven and all the spirits of just men made perfect with him. And there, my friends, we shall behold them in the sky as they retrieve their bodies by the, Lord's Jesus, the Lord Jesus' power and you and I shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and be gathered together with the Lord of hosts. And we're going to be with Him when He goes back in as the King of hosts or the Lord of hosts. We're going to hear when heaven declares, Be ye, lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. You know what He's going to say? Hebrews 2 says this, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. The Lord of armies will be on our side at that day. And the King of glory, the Lord of hosts... She'll take us in triumphantly. Why? Because He, as the Lord of armies, got the victory for you and I, and has freely handed it to us. What a day. I mean, imagine what it's going to be like when you hear the host of heaven declare, Be ye, lift up ye everlasting doors. Let the King of glory come in. When He went back up the first time, the Bible says in the book of Daniel, He approached from the earth and He sat down by the Ancient of Days. And all of heaven rejoiced when the Son of God came back. Why? Because they saw Him victorious at Calvary. They saw Him victorious three days and three nights later as He came forth from the grave. If they rejoiced at that first appearance of Christ in heaven, how's it going to be when He comes back with redemption complete and all the ransom host of God surrounding Him as He comes into the doors and the gates of heaven? The shout and the glory of that place, I think it will just be beyond anything we can even begin to express with human language. We're going to see him as he comes a second time. We're going to see him as the Lord of armies. My friends, we need to see him as the Lord of armies in our time now. To recognize, as Hannah did when she was provoked, that there was a Lord of hosts on her side that would come to her defense. Like David did when he faced the giant to recognize that there was a God of hosts to the army of Israel that would deliver him against a giant who came against him. We need to remember uh, when we go out to face the battles of this world that we shouldn't look to the idols of this world like they did there in 1 Samuel 4, trusting in the ark, but trust to the Lord of hosts to fight our battles for us. As we go about to try to promote the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to do as Zerubbabel did. And not trust in our might, not trust in our power, but trust in the Spirit of God. And hopefully when the headstone is placed, we'll just cry and shout with everlasting shouts saying, grace, grace unto it. But my friends, the ultimate shining will come when the King of glory comes back the second time and takes us all home. And the Lord of hosts shall enter once again into glory and take his rightful place as the everlasting Son of God. And their God, the Bible says, will finally be all in all. May God bless you today as I pray.